Hi, Natalie. Hey, Tara. What's up? Nothing much. How are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? Good. Yeah, I saw Ben Folds with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra last night. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. It was wonderful. I bet it was. It was so good. Where was it? Uh, At the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Woodruff Arts Center. Yes. Beautiful. So good. He played some funny new songs that he wrote during the pandemic. One in particular, uh, well, there were two songs based off of headlines that the Patreon audience selected that he would write the songs from or about. That's a cool And one idea. in particular was just like a wacky article that was just, you know, probably related to some crazy political story that we all are just tired of reading these days. But he's flipped it and wrote a song about the potential author of this crazy article. And it was like, from the standpoint of someone who you might have gone to high school with that maybe didn't really get out of their hometown and kind of turned into one of those conspiracy theorists. Mm -mm crazies Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was so funny like everyone you could tell was hanging on to every word of the song and it just got me thinking too because he reminded me a little bit about Elton John yeah and I thought I was just thinking oh what about you know some of these artists that write about characters just got me thinking oh hi how are you welcome to the store yes let us know if you need anything we'll be back here behind the counter just chatting away So yeah, I was just thinking about these artists who write about kind of these kooky characters. Do you have any favorites? That's a good question. So immediately Prince comes to mind for me. Like he's a really great storyteller. He always had really quirky, you know, vivid characters in his songs. Like, you know, Raspberry Beret, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Yeah, Darling Nikki. Love Prince. Uh, Joni Mitchell is another big one. Tori Amos. Kendrick Lamar, David Bowie, like now the names are just flooding in, but yeah. Dolly Parton, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, The Gambler, yeah. Yeah. So many just good characters to uh, get behind. Oh, hey, look who it is. Hello, speaking of great storytellers. (laughs) It's Joan LeMay and Alex Papademas. Welcome. What's up? Hello. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, how's it going? This store is it's incredible. Awesome. Oh yeah, we have all oh, the, the stuff. good stuff in stock. Yeah, we didn't get uh we didn't we didn't get bought out uh, after Record Store Day. Luckily, <laughs> we were just talking about artists that that have really good songs about kind of just these interesting characters, and so it's so perfect. It's perfect timing that you're here in the store today because. You are both part of this amazing new book called Quantum Criminals, which is super appropriate also because we love to talk about Steely Dan in the store. And this is a book about stories from Steely Dan songs and just themselves, Walter and Donald. So it's so appropriate that you're both here today. Anywhere there are people talking about Steely Dan in a record store, I, I, I like to be there. I can't help but overhear. Just listening yeah, it's, to the it's background. Like it's like a it's like a bat signal. Yeah, we lured you here like sirens from the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get an alert on my phone actually, and I I, I just dial it for, <laughs> for anything whenever that's happening. Nice. That's so funny. What can you maybe I don't know, one of you or either of you give us the lowdown on just like 
what the book entails? I mean, I kind of said a little bit of it, but... Uh, yeah, it is over 100 original paintings of characters, people, and things from the Songs of Steely Dan by Joan and uh, accompanying text by me that kind of bounces off of those, the, the, the idea of these Steely Dan characters and kind of uses that to illuminate this, uh, very, very, the very kind of murky, uh, mysterious world of, of Steely Dan, uh, lyrically. Yeah. So cool. I don't think I've seen any, well, I don't know. I try to read a bunch of music books. I'm still catching up. Of course, uh, there's a million out there, but like, I don't think I've seen a book about characters from songs before. So it seems unique on the market for me, which is really cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's unique on the market for us too. It's, um, it's, the the characters themselves sort of serve as foci for Alex's text because Alex talks about the whole entire universe of the band and uh, delves into into you know narrative questions and lyrical musings and his own experience with the band and it, it's it's a there there is sort of a jumping off point more than more than anything to discuss anything and everything about uh, about Steely Dan. A good, but it's a good format. Yeah, I need foci is the thing, or else, uh, <laughs> especially on Steely Dan, or I will just go galaxy brain. And 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 so <laughs> this was once once this idea kind of came up uh, of doing it this way, it was incredibly appealing because it's so it was it created this sort of perfect structure for a story about uh, you know all these all these all these characters, or it created this perfect structure for a story about Steely Dan, for a way to tell the Steely Dan yeah. story without just kind of going chronologically or going down a million tangents. Not that I didn't do that, but could have been much worse. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I was originally going to paint uh, every single named character in the Steely Dan universe, which is like two hundred and sixty something, which is just bananas. Nobody it, that's it's like that's like the, nobody wants that. Well, maybe people want that, but that's it's but it's too much. It's too much. So we yeah. How long did it take you to create all of this art? I did it. I well, I've been I've been thinking about these characters and people and what they look like my whole life. But I, the period of time that I sat down and busted everything out for the book, uh, I did in an almost kind of manic type of state in maybe eight months, nine months, um, where sometimes I was doing a couple of a day, just kind of kind of going for it. Um, I'd originally started doing some drawings when, uh, before it was this book, uh, when it was going to be a fanzine. Well, it, this wasn't going to be, but I was making a, a fanzine called Danzine. And Alex was speaking with Jessica Hopper, um, our book doula and our friend and the brilliant, incredible writer and director and producer and editor for UT Press American Music Series about what he was going to write as a Dan book. And I believe believe your pitch Alex was um Bluett's but Steely Dan kind of yeah is it was gonna be the, right which is weird because like the thing about Bluett's is that it's 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 a Maggie Nelson book and it's the, the thing about it is that the things are short uh which I did not do that was the main the, one of the things that clearly went on <laughs> about that 
that concept because they're all like little paragraph and, long. Yeah. I think it's like I have it here and like it's the longest thing in it is really not that long. Um, and so they these end up being more like more like essays than I meant. They were supposed to be mini essays and then they just became essays. Uh, uh, but but yeah, no, I we had sort of individually had these ideas for Steely Dan related projects around the same time. And we both knew Jessica. And so the minute Joan posted something about the Dan zine, I was already talking about this thing. And I was like, that's a really good idea for a, a book about a structure, a framing device for a, a book about Steely Dan. And uh, the rest is history. Joan did her stuff way faster than I did. Although I feel like I wrote this one kind of fast, but it took me longer than eight months. Um, Cause I wrote a bunch, a bunch of stuff really quickly and then really mulched over it for much longer. But uh, yeah. Wow. That's cool. I, I was going to ask, how did you, how did this, this uh, partnership come about? But that's, that's really neat that you had, you know, this Dan zine in mind and now, and then your idea as well. And just, it was an, a collab meant to happen, just like Donald and Walter. It, right, it's perfect. It's two sensibilities um, kind of meshing yeah. together in the third stream that exists uh, between them. It's quantum criminals. That is yeah. how that happened. Yeah. And Joan, your artwork, you always capture personality so well in your portraits, but also like even you did this mug zine a while back. And I just thought that was a really cool way to capture people's personalities, but like through their favorite coffee mugs with their stories attached. And I just thought that was so cool. And I feel like this is such a good way to capture these other characters in this book and also Walter and Donald too. But yeah, it, your, your, your art is so vivid and colorful and shows that personality so well. Yeah. It's really cool. Thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. The, there, there was something, uh, the, the thing that I think the, the mug club fanzines, which were a series of fanzines I made, um, pandemic time and a little bit before, uh, and, and this project had in common and, and, and is something that kind of echoes throughout my work sometimes is having one idea and then doing a lot of it. So it was like, I'm not just painting a few mugs. I'm going to paint a hundred mugs. I'm not just going to paint or draw a couple of these characters. I want, I'm making a spreadsheet and putting them all at, you know, there's something, um, maybe it is that thing that Alex and I were just talking about in terms of uh, having a framework. When you have a framework for a creative project, it can really help propel that forward. And, you know, there's also the old adage about you make make a hundred pots and one of them is good. I, I find that when you just make and make and make and make and make, eventually you find, you know, your groove. So I like, I like doing things in series. Absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. I have a question for Alex. So this is such a meticulously researched and well-organized book. How on earth do you begin to approach a project of this magnitude? Like as a writer, what happens just before you're ready to sit and type that first sentence? I, I guess, well, I mean, yeah, par uh, partner with somebody who's good at making spreadsheets and good at thinking about things structurally uh, helps a lot. It, it, that was that was a big part. Like that alone, just having somebody somebody else's thinking about like how to organize it, uh, that, that really helps. But you want to basically like you want to do anything you can to avoid like starting from a blank page. And so I just kind of, I would, you know, just started just dumping research into 
different, you know, little sort of sub documents within, do you know what uh, Scrivener is? Does anybody use Scrivener on, yes. the, on this call? Uh, Scrivener has changed my entire writing life. There's a million things that it does that I don't use. Like I have friends who are like, oh, here's this great macro. I don't, I don't know how to do any of that stuff, but it's just being able to sort of have like picture in picture and have like a sort of a list on the side. And I would just kind of write, I had like, you know, a hundred little garbage drafts of each thing. So it would be like for, you know, Kings or, you know, Dr. Wu or the Babylon sisters or whatever. I would just, anytime I had something, I would just kind of put it in there without really worrying about even how it would read. You know, so there's like links and like clippings and like all kinds of stuff. So it's like having folders or something. And then gradually those things would get refined and refined and refined and refined. Um, but I find that anything that like keeps you from looking at a blank page is good. And even like the garbagiest garbage draft, like it's, it's the, <laughs> it's a truism, but like, that's the only thing. And so, but like Scrivener makes it so that you don't, you can see where all of your stuff is at a moment's notice and be like, oh, I could, I need to move this. This should be in with the the dread moray eel and not with uh you know the third world man or whatever so you just kind of shuffle those things around it just becomes a lot more intuitive uh to do it that way i wrote two books uh in about two years and i don't think i could have done either of them without the 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 scrivener aspect of it all um i am not getting paid to endorse them on podcasts i just (laughs) go around doing it um because it really is it's like a tool that has changed the way that i that i work and so you don't have to keep all this stuff in your head so yeah i think that like by the time you're actually writing the first sentence hopefully for each of these i mean i also broke it down it's also not like a i didn't sit down and write a 240 page book i sat down and wrote uh you know however many it is like 60 three to four page essays because the other thing i've always written short my whole career and so this is just me trying to turn the writing of a 240 page book into a bunch of like short little assignments. Cause that's like how I've sort of, you know, work made my working life is all you know, little freelance pieces here and there. So I made it into small bits to do that. Wow. Well, kudos to you. It's, it's quite an impressive yeah. feat and I share your Scrivener praise. It's incredibly complex, but I think it's worth tackling the learning curve for, cause you're right. It is a great organizational tool, but yeah, that's, that's really great advice. It's yeah, I just it's it lets you do a lot of things on a small laptop screen, which is the other thing. Like you can have everything in front of you. Like it's really you can if you have a you know giant monitor, it's a different thing. But like I I work on this just MacBook, and so it's kind of you know it just helps to kind of have everything uh, in front of you. Um, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of having everything in front of you too, Joan, did you did you all have a list of characters already picked out and places and things, or did you or songs or how would or did you just like how did you do that? <laughs> So we made a thing called the Master Daniverse character spreadsheets that wow. was so, it was such a good, and Alex and I had our Monday, we had Monday morning Dan book calls, which were so great because it was like, all right, touch base. Whoa, where, where are we? What are, what are we doing? What's happening? Um, but we, we listed everything by, there were various columns. There was an, uh, you know, album song character and then a column where we would put our thoughts and there was a color coding process uh, with the characters we were considering and there were you know Alex would talk about what um, what characters he thought he had uh, something to say about or has ideas he wanted to write about that he could tie into a particular character. And I would highlight, well, I really want to paint this person. I really want to do this. So we sort of married those two things together and, and came up with uh, our ultimate list of 
who we were picking. Um, I believe we we also at, at a certain point we were talking about. I, I wanted. I had these these grand, and you know, we're still there. Still, will be some some merch that's made. But we had an idea about a a playing card deck or a tarot deck, perhaps with paintings from the book. Um, so we, I believe, that is how cool. we picked whatever it was, 62 or whatever the, the initial number was. We also, you know, you have to keep in, in mind page count. So it can't, it, we, there were, there's, there are a ton of characters that could have been, I mean, we, we could have made this thing thrice as big, but you know, it's, that's cost prohibitive and it's also attention span prohibitive, et cetera. Uh, so there had to be an editing process there, but that's, yeah, that's how we, we just batted back and forth with, um, kind of what felt right and then did that. seems like it would be a hard choice if you had to cut one that you were just really thrilled about. Although that leaves room for more volumes as well. That's true. Yeah, it's, we could expand the cast. I, I, we mostly cut if it was. I just mostly cut things. I like. I think my, the, what I would say. I you know didn't want to do so. It was mostly just like I didn't have a thought for like monkey in your soul or whatever. They're just yeah, those kinds of conversations. Like who is that? Like does that say anything to you about a character? I couldn't really see that person right. necessarily. But yeah. I feel like honestly, like it, it's it, it seemed like it mattered at the time. Now I kind of feel like if there were more characters in this book, nobody would be sad. Like, I don't think anybody would be like, there's too many of my favorite Steely Dan guys in here. <laughs> Same. Um, Same. Well, I think it's more, but it was more like at the time it seemed really important and just sort of talking about it kind of made it was a way of thinking about it and talking about it with another person as, you know, really those phone calls were Joan being relentlessly positive about how great this was going to be and me being like, I don't know. Cause that's the way I am in every, the middle of every <laughs> writing project just sucks ass. And you're just like, Oh God, this is going to be the worst book ever. And Joan would be like, come on, we can do it. Positive <laughs> mm-hmm. mental attitude. And that is that's why this it. book exists. I've got PMA tattooed on my arm, literally. (laughs) I have to remember to have it, you know. For for what it's worth, though, I totally want a Steely Dan tarot card deck. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, I do too. You know, we'll 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 see. It's it's we'll we'll see we'll see if we can um, put that together. Yeah, I, I, eyes out. I feel like I don't know enough about tarot, but like every character would be the hanged man. I think we're, they're all kind of doomed. Like it's just, <laughs> like, just yeah. See, yeah, that would, I, I, would but I kind of love that idea. Want, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, barbarians, the empress. The, I don't know who the death card is. Yeah, probably daddy. Um, yeah. I yeah. now I'm thinking about it. There's 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 room. I know. I'm already, I'm like, who would Dr. Wu be, though? Uh, oh, actually. Uh, maybe like the Ten of Cups or something, because many yeah. cups of various substances in front of him. Yeah, I don't think I know enough about tarot either, but I think it's a really cool idea, and I would buy it <laughs> just to have, because it's Steely Dan related. Well, so every time our friends come into the store, we like to play games. Um, sometimes it's the high fidelity game. Sometimes it's this thing called first timers interview quiz game. And so I thought since you're both here, it would be really cool to get to know you both a little better. And maybe we could do the first timers quiz together. Would you be down? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's, do, let's do this. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, Joan, you're up first. 
Oh, what? Oh, oh, let me tell you, I guess, what's the rules of the game, basically, is just, I'm going to ask you some questions, just try to answer them as accurately as possible, um, all music-related, of course, no wrong answers, we're just excited to see uh, who you are in, in, mus- in your own music history terms. So, what was your first record? So, Like vinyl. Yeah, so... Super duper swear to God that my first musical memory, which is this is this is I, I keep trotting out this tale because it's a true tale. My first musical memory is a Steely Dan memory um, because my parents had very, very few records. They had, you know, like 15 records, the Steely Dan catalog, um, the Nightfly was added to that later. There was uh, there were a few Linda Ronstadt records. There was some James Taylor, Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick, a few other things. Um, but I really, really loved Steely Dan. And when I the first my first musical memory is finally being tall enough when I was a baby. And I keep saying I was a, I was a tall baby when I was <laughs> able to heft the LP of Can't Buy a Thrill onto the turntable for the first time. felt this immense satisfaction. I have this memory of plopping down on the brown shag carpet in front of the record player and listening to that. So that was, I, um, in terms of the first like vinyl record that I bought myself, I don't actually know uh, because I, t- I, I, when I, I moved out of my parents' house at 17, um, I took the record player, I took all the records and I started adding to the stack, mostly from the dollar bin. Like I was, I was dollar bin and thrift store. So I, I got like Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. And I got, uh, I, I, I liked getting um, classical records and jazz records and, and records. I, I expanded on, I got Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark. I got a blue, I went on a, a Joni Mitchell jag, but I don't remember what the very, I don't, yeah, I don't remember what the very first one I ever purchased with intent rather than curiosity was. That makes sense. Yeah. Alex, what about you? Uh, my, my first ever, if we're saying record, we're going to use record as, the, as the, the framework. It is probably something Star Wars related, probably one of those uh, where you get the 45 and the booklet and you kind of read the story of uh, like Empire Strikes Back and turn the page. And I think that was, that was, that was, I mean, there's something about that. Like, you know, I think it's like, why do I like, why, why did, why was podcasting so appealing? It's there's something about like the the story and the sound and all of those things kind of coming together. So it was like, it was the, you know, they're, they're kind of like radio dramas or whatever. I don't even know if this still exists as a type of format for things anymore, but like, it used to be like, here's a book and you put on the record and like, somebody will read the, and it's for teach kids to read. Like you sort of like you, you read along with it and you kind of eventually like, you know how to read that book and then you can read other books. Um, and I think I, in terms of like a formative, like vinyl memory, uh, like I think about, you know, like my dad's copy of like the 2001 soundtrack. you know, which is a perfect thing as a kid to, you know, sort of put on because it had, it's, you know, I, it, it had some kind of a space aspect to it and it was this giant thing. But I, I like, I don't really know. I, I couldn't tell you 
like what my, you know, like later in life, you know, 17, 18, when you're, you know, buying like vinyl for the first time, I don't know what the first one would have been at that point. Um, but these are the, those are the formative ones. That's what I got. Which is interesting because you're now a journalist. You're talking about storybooks. You're now a journalist. And you mentioned podcasts. You also have a podcast, The Big Hit Show. Yes, uh, indeed. You just kind of are spanning different mediums, different genres, kind of doing deep dives into certain things. What is your, what's the guideline for you there? What's your spreadsheet for that? Oh, like how to, the, what, all these different, uh, get in where you fit in. Uh, somebody wants to pay me <laughs> to do it, I will do it. But but no, I mean, the thing I loved about podcasts when they came along is that like I, I had always... I, I'd always liked things like that. I'd always liked the, you know, spoken word stuff with music behind it and, uh, you know, kind of weird radio things like Joe Frank and stuff like that before, like the podcast was, a, you know, before, before that, this kind of thing had a name, you know, and, uh, I think that, yeah, so I, it was, it was a combination of a bunch of things that I've always wanted to do. And I'm sort of a, you know, forever frustrated musician who can't really play anything. And so it was a way to make, tell stories with sound when that came along, it was very exciting. And, you know, I kind of have really enjoyed doing that and, you know, sort of having it be, you know, uh, rather than becoming a spoken word performer, uh, which probably is a direction I could have gone in because I grew up in the '90s. I could have become like a like a Henry Rollins type of like slam poet kind of guy, <laughs> which is probably for the best that that, that energy went somewhere else. <laughs> you didn't have your Ma- Maggie Estep moment. <laughs> just took the Rollins stance. You can't see there me. It's a podcast. Yeah, but I just did the Rollins arm lock. All right. Awesome. So let's go on. Next question. Joan, what was your first cassette? My first cassette, you know, I, I, the first cassette that I per and I'm, and I'm, I'm frameworking this into the first cassette that I purchased that I asked for was the Bangles different light. In 1986, um, and I oh, remember yeah. having uh, that. I remember having uh, Debbie Gibson Electric Youth, which was 89. Awesome. Whitney Houston, uh, her eponymous record was uh, what year? It was 80. 86 86 or 87 yeah yep i had the flash dance soundtrack those those were tapes that were mine those were the first tapes that were mine that i that i remember having that weren't just my my parents and my parents tape assortment was much larger and also to your point alex with the with the kid records, which was a genre I hadn't even thought about. I had <laughs> a similar, uh, I had, I had those, a bunch of those, the, the, the book and seven inch guys, but also tapes. And there were, there was one tape. It was telling a story about dinosaurs talking about this. I feel like I'm talking about a dream, but it was real. It was talking about dinosaurs and then you would, you would listen to the story and you would draw the dinosaurs. So it was kind of an early illustration assignment. 
um, which is interesting. But Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, actually, yeah, like all the first things you just mentioned, that was like my same exact stuff too. So we we had a similar similar tastes as youngins because Whitney was my first cassette tape, and then I also had the Flashdance album, and then I had Debbie Gibson, but it was the Out of the Blue one. Oh yeah, with, yeah. With Shake Your Love, I just oh. can't shake your love. <laughs> yeah, the best. Yeah. Joan, those are all A-plus picks. You have amazing taste. I love it. How about you, Alex? First cassette. Uh, first cassette. I definitely had Different Light really early. That was one for me as well. That is a great record. I I, I vouch for that uh, to this day. Um, but I think the very first like tape tape that I bought with my own mind is probably Sports by Huey Lewis in the News, uh, Ooh, which snap. solid, solid record. This is it. Uh, you know, he was, he was, he had a moment, uh, but I'm from the Bay Area, from Northern California, from San Francisco, and uh, he was a god because he was from there. So, so you have to, all of those, anybody who was like vaguely from the area had like, as is in any, you know, sort of local thing, you know, like it's like uh, Santana, Metallica, um, <laughs> uh, who else, like sort of a journey, like anybody who sort of had some kind of Bay Area reputation and had not like decamped for LA, like just became like a, you know, just a god among musicians. Uh, Huey's incredible. Those are really great, like just kind of, you know, power pop songs. Um, and that's, that is like, I want a new drug on it. It has all the, you know, basically anything that's not on four you know, it's, it doesn't have Jacob's Ladder, but like any of the, the, the real, the sort of the fundamental, you know, kind of Huey Lewis, you know, Desert Island uh, album, I would say, is is, is that one. Um, yeah. So that was. Yeah. Have you seen him? Have I seen Have him? you seen him live? I never have. There was a moment when I tried to, I was trying to do a profile of him. Somebody pitched me, a, like, so his publicist pitched me and I wanted to do it. And I couldn't really figure out anywhere uh, to, uh, to do it. I, I've, I've always uh, wanted to. Um, and I, I, is he still performing? I know he had some kind of thing where he was like, he was losing his yeah. hearing so he couldn't perform anymore. Is he done? Is he out of the game? No, I, I heard that too, but he did play a recent, well, recently, like a few, maybe like four years ago at Shaky Knees, which is this outdoor festival they have in Atlanta. And he, it was sports in full. Oh, and wow. it was the most amazing experience. Yeah, I was like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> it was so good. But yeah, I don't, I mean, he sounded perfect. It, like he wouldn't have any hearing issues at all. Like he sounded perfect. So I wonder if he's just, you know, taking uh, a break or, or what. He's, I mean, he's judging he a Cabernet cook-off in Napa. Um, <laughs> oh, he just did. Wow. That happened and that was this weekend. We missed it. Um, so he's, oh, he's still, he's still out there as a public figure, but yeah, I think he, it, it looks like he's uh, maybe sort of off the, yeah, he lost a lot of his hearing. Oh, in like 2018. Oh. Um, this, oh yeah, he has not oh. performed live since, since 2018. So that, that might be that I, I might've missed have the, been... I might've missed the window on that Dang. one. Dang, that's uh, a bummer. I mean, on both I'm going to, I'm going to Google this, uh, Huey Lewis Cabernet cook-off though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a happening. Yeah. But also his, his character work in all those music videos, like all of them, are so good. What was the Halloween one <laughs> where it's like all the heads under the bell jar things? Oh, yeah. oh my God. 
You're taking me back. It, yeah, no, it's a oh. uh, it's a uh, doing it all for my baby where he's Frankenstein. He's uh, Doctor. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. He's Doctor Frankenstein, and the, yeah, the the like yeah. all of that. He's a good actor. He's a good. He's he's very good. He's in Shortcuts. He's in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. He's one of the guys on the fishing trip. That's in Shortcuts. right. Uh, he's in. Is he on Back to the Future too? I think as a musician, maybe. I think he's not as. I don't think he's playing. I think he's just there as a. You know, the, like it's like a when Soundgarden was in singles or whatever kind of cameo. Oh, right. or, oh, yeah. <laughs> he's in. He's in duets though. He's in the the Gwyneth Paltrow the karaoke oh, movie yeah. duets. He's in that. Okay. Yeah. He's in. Yeah. So you know, I kind of love that song. I yeah. I feel like more people should cast Huey Lewis in things. That's the, if if there's one lesson, if there's one message that you, people take away from this podcast is I think Huey Lewis should be more respected as an actor than he currently is. Do you mean our listeners in our store? <laughs> of course. Anyone within the sound of my voice in this store, I'm going to stand on this dollar <laughs> bin of records, uh, you know, Pablo Cruz albums and say, Huey Lewis as a thespian. We have so many, pa- we have so many Pablo Cruz albums. Can't get rid of them. Yeah, there's just no five, demand. Five for a dollar. Yeah. After the Steely Dan Renaissance comes the Pablo Cruz Renaissance. Inevitably, that will you know people will get in there and kind of you know write a book like this uh, about that the catalog as well. I feel like if it sustains it, I don't know. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So, Joan, what was your first CD? So my first CD, I got a bunch of things at once because I had no CD player, and then it was 1993. And I got a CD player. I got a, it was like an Iowa uh, four disc changer guy. And wow. um, so I, yeah, it, it was, it was, you know, with two speakers that, that connected, it was a whole system. So I went, I went from zero to a hundred yeah. <laughs> and I know, and I don't know what came first, but I remember um, that I had Revolver on CD. I had Cranberries. Everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? I had Siamese Dream. I had Enya's Shepherd Moons. I would listen Whoa. to that going to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Belly. Yeah, I had because I I was a I was a tape woman. I had a skillion tapes, but I had not um, I had not CD'd yet. And then that begun that started my my uh, short illustrious career um, shoplifting CDs. So that those, I remember I remember having those as the first ones that I purchased. But then I remember doing a thing. And I don't, you know, this is a terrible thing to say in a record store. Please know that I'm no longer doing this. I'm not going to. But when I was a when I was a teen, I would wear double underwear and I would put and and do it in this weird way because it was the long boxes. then. if you remember the long boxes and I would wear baggy pants and I would peg the legs and stick long boxes down my thighs and walk out real weird but I never got caught and I remember I do the first I stole use your illusion two. I stole (laughs) I stole a bunch of shit I think use use your illusion two was the first long box that I shot now it it would have been funny if you gotten caught like what a funny (laughs) reason to be caught stealing (laughs) (laughs) for guns and roses I love it 
That's like, you know, how a lot of people are like, oh, I got this from BMG Music Club. Joan is like, this is one that I stole. (laughs) Yeah, from Tower Records or whatever the hell. (laughs) No, Best Buy. That's where I would go. That's right. Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. That's hilarious. What about you, Alex? Uh, I I was a square growing up, so I got all of these uh, the normal way uh, through through uh, <laughs> capitalism. Um, but I think uh, the probably the first CD that I owned was probably was either these were both around the same time, but I I don't know when was first Cosmic Thing by the B fifty twos. Uh, very solid nice. B-52s album, huge hit B-52s album, or Sex Packets by Digital Underground, which is also a fantastic mm. album. Stop what you're doing, because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. I look funny, but yo, I'm making money, see? So yo, world, I hope you're ready for me. Not- uh, again, Bay Area interest that is the source of the the humpy dance r.i.p shock g um many different characters (laughs) many of whom were the same person uh but yeah that was like my and you know that's really that was really important because that's through that that was the window that was like oh and this is it opens the door to p-funk because so much of that came from that music and so even i think that's like i think that's like a year before the chronic so i think that was probably the way that i first kind of heard all of that parliament stuff and all of those samples that would become so familiar so that was a big that was a big introduction to a lot of things but i remember that those were those were specifically digital because i remember listening to them at my dad's house which is where i had the digital capability versus uh, my mom's place which was uh, i was cassette only um so that was the that was the division so that was the, that was the start of the, the of the stack and there was probably an mc hammer album in there too but we're not going to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah, no, I love I love the digital underground reference, and it brought up a memory of mine. I don't think it was the first CD I bought, but it was quite possibly the first D- CD I stole from my brother. Yeah, because <laughs> I was way, way into that album, too. All right. Yeah, oh, hold on. One yeah. second, Natalie. I was just going to say that you mentioned P-Funk, which reminded me of Jones' portrait of Bootsy Collins. Oh, and yeah. I was going to, and I was going to ask, uh, like, how did you visualize some of these characters that you illustrated for the Quantum Criminals book? Like, how did you come to this like visualization of certain characters? I had a uh, a, a folder on my computer that uh, was called the Dan Casting Gallery that I, there just, I, I used, because this is, this is during, I I did this during lockdown. Um, so I couldn't have friends pose for me. I couldn't, you know, take people's pictures and, and, and sort of stage reference images. So I used a combination of, um, found photos, pre-existing photos of friends. And I looked at a lot of, uh, clothing catalogs and sewing catalogs from the from the 70s as as both clothing influence and uh person influence and made up a lot of the faces and then a lot of the face I I did a lot of posing I would take pictures of myself in various poses if I wanted to have um somebody sitting a certain way or what have you and and just sort of stitched together uh a lot of it and many of the characters are actually real people 
um, Jill St. John or, or Kennedy or Nixon or G. Gordon Liddy or, you know, um, so then I would just look at, you know, pictures of them on the internet and make composites of those images and, and, um, and paint those. But, uh, but I would, but I would look through a bajamillion found photos. There were, there were some family members of mine, my grandparents are in it. (laughs) Um, so it's a whole, it's a whole mismatch of mishmash of uh, things fitting together that made sense with sort of what was in my head. Cool. It's interesting. Sorry, Natalie. No, it's all good. Actually, that makes me think of another question I have for Joan. And I'm, I'm not, I don't draw or paint very well, so I don't even know if this is a thing, but I'm going to try to ask it the best way I can. I notice in many of your paintings in the book, the characters are set against like this swath of like a trio of color patches, right? And some of them have the same color patches and, you know, different ones. Is there some meaning behind the colors that you selected for the characters? Like, do those combinations mean something? Yeah. And you're the first. Thanks. It's um, the, the background behind all of the characters that the color scheme corresponds to the album in which the character appears so uh so yeah so if a character exists in the universe of the royal scam it's all grays and blacks if it's can't buy a thrill it's hot pink and yellow and green and everything so uh so it that's that's why it was a way it was also a way to keep um we we didn't we wanted to have not equal weight between albums but we didn't we didn't want to get too too out of control and have like nine million characters from Gaucho and then only one from Two Against Nature or something like that. So um, it was a way also almost like highlight in my in my in my organizational brain, um, almost like highlighting on the spreadsheet to um, keep the characters in the world for me. Oh, that's super cool. I love that. Yeah, me too. Good question. All right, Joan. As our next pick here, we're doing first digital download. That is something that I have no recollection of whatsoever. <laughs> and so I want to say the answer is probably when I started, I used to, the aforementioned Jessica Hopper, um, she uh, brought me to Chicago to work with her in 99, 2000. Um, and we, at her publicity company, then um, Hyper PR, which then became Hopper PR. And at a certain point for certain records, we had some sort of digital download that we would send to writers like Alex, which is how Alex and I know each other. And uh, But I didn't, like, I didn't have an iPod until way later down the road. I wasn't a Napster per, I just wasn't, I think I wasn't technologically savvy enough, um, to, yeah, to have, to have that going on. Um, so it was, it was probably promos from when I worked with Jessica. Mm, Okay. What about you, Alex? I also don't remember exactly what the first one was, but when Napster came out, 
uh, I was working at a trade publication and we hooked up a, because we were nervous about viruses, I guess we had a dedicated Napster PC in the corner of our like little office pod uh, to sort of test things. We were writing a lot of stories about Napster and it was like, oh, has this record leaked? Has that record leaked or whatever? Uh, in the movie version of this scene, like I said, I don't remember what it really was, but in the movie version of this scene, the first thing that I search for is uh, Whistle While You Twerk by the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> uh, just because yes. I think that was, we would just kind of look at the charts and be like, what, what is that? And can we, can we immediately hear it? And you know, I was like, yes, there, there it is. So Whistle While You Twerk is uh, based on the classic uh, Disney Snow White song uh but it's about twerking and god bless the yin yang twins um and i think that's like the first yin yang twins song i think it was like the 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 breakthrough um and 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 the peak perhaps as well (laughs) it's hilarious yeah that's awesome the next question i have on here is first album you bought yourself but i feel like we kind of already addressed yeah, we this covered question. that mm-hmm. so i'll go to the next which is what was your first concert joan mine much like the the tape was uh the fr- and this is the first concert that i intentionally was like i want to go i want to go and and attended was the bangles uh in 1999 so in houston where i'm from they played the opening of the Sam Houston Tollway, which is <laughs> insane. So it was this outdoor thing. Uh, and and I think whoever, the city of Houston or whoever the hell organized this, didn't understand the massive, massive popularity of the Bengals. And I think it was something like 10,000 or 15,000 Houstonians came um, and I remember wow. very vividly watching them from the top of a parking garage. It oh my was gosh. bizarre, but that that was my first intentional. But I started before that from the time I was probably like four or five, I would go with my father to the rodeo again, Houston. So the, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo has a, a musical guest at the end of every night. And I saw Merle Haggard. I saw Conway Twitty. I saw George Strait. I saw, I was so young. And so it was just kind of what was happening more than it was uh, something where I was, I was aware and excited and knew the songs. I was just, I was just young, young Joan, like seeing Merle Haggard in 1980. <laughs> I'll drink my beer in a tavern, sing a little bit of these working man blues. That's still that's really so cool. cool. Like that you yeah. could say that you've seen you've seen Conway Twitty. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. And you saw them in like the optimal setting too in Houston. Right. Houston has a rodeo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. What about you, Alex? Uh I I I have two minor kind of, uh, I was, the, I, they're not as cool as Jones. Um, <laughs> just, just for, for starters, let's just lay that out. Let's lower the bar of expectation. And I was kind of a sheltered kid. I didn't go to a lot of concerts until relatively late. So my first one is probably in 1992, November 92, U2 Zoo TV tour outside broadcast uh, at the Oakland Coliseum. Don't take it on board. Don't fall on your surges. Uh, 
which is uh, sounds it's going to sound like cooler than it is because the opening acts are the Sugar Cubes and Public Enemy. So I saw what? Chuck D and Bjork at the same show before like people really knew who Bjork was, you know, and like at, at that point. I mean, I guess people who like the Sugar Cubes knew who she was. So that was that was pretty cool. Uh, but my first like club concert, like at a, like show in a club, uh, was. Uh, I, I refer to it as hole opening for the Lemonheads or the Lemonheads closing for hole. At Slim's in San Francisco, uh, November 1993 is famously the one where it's a, a great uh, representatively 1990s Courtney Love performance where she talked a lot of shit and then <laughs> according to people at uh, my high school left the building and like got on a the muni bus outside of the club to like go off to you know to do whatever she was going to do in that period of her life it was a very tumultuous time in courtney love's existence but i remember her being like this is like get coming out there and being like we only get to play through a half stack the lemon heads get the full stack and it was like <laughs> behind them um it's it, yeah it's like and, and it's just great like slims is this club that's owned by boz skaggs or was at the time and it was a, a nice place to, to to see shows uh but i don't really have any memory of the Lemonheads at all and i thought whole were amazing so i i refer to it as like a whole show that i saw and then uh i was very embarrassed once because i was interviewing somebody and i had to answer this first concert question uh and i had to tell somebody that my first concert was whole and the person i had to say it to was dave grohl uh, which was, he was like, I can't fucking believe it. he was like, it was just, it just, it really went over. It was, it was hilariously terrible answer to give to that man at that period of time. This is when they were like doing each other over Nirvana things. Uh, but he, it was hilarious and but it was embarrassing. And awesome. Um, that's incredible. Okay. But you set that whole thing up so wrong. Cause like you two and the sugar cubes, it's and public it's first show. Yeah, <laughs> you know you. Yeah. you beat me. It's not. It's not. That uh, it's it's not. I, it's we're not Conway Twitty though. It's like Conway. That's like the you know you saw Living Legends. I mean, I guess like at this point Bono's a living I mean, legend too. But Bono, yeah. But like this was a you know this was a this is a baseball state. It's a giant. It's a part you know it's a ballpark, and so it's like you know I'm about ten million miles away from anything. Yeah, I just remember sure. the I, there being a sure. lot of public enemy really did for an opening act had a lot of like S1W choreography before they got around to doing any <laughs> songs. It was really like bringing out public enemy took half an hour. <laughs> Man, I'm actually reading uh, Surrender right now. Bono's book and well I'm listening to the audiobook and it's him talking and there's a lot of political theme things at some point I'm like okay can I don't want to hear you do any more George Bush impersonations can I hear more about your touring life please like I don't know uh tell me the apple story let's get to it chop chop (laughs) but um that was what I loved about that movie, uh, Mike, It Might Get Loud, the movie with him, with The Edge and Jack White and Jimmy Page. Because it was, I was like, oh, you know, I actually love hearing about you too from someone other than Bob. Bono. It's, you know, it, and it's no disrespect to Bono as a person. It's just right. like he's been the narrator of this story and kind of has been the holder of it. And I really liked hearing the edge talk about like how he got that guitar tone. Like I could have listened to that for like for hours. I wanted to hear everybody else in YouTube a little more. I feel like. Yeah. It has been really interesting though, to hear 
I mean, the history of it so far, it's like a 40-hour audiobook. So three weeks later, and I still have like 20% more to go. But it has been really interesting. So that's cool. I've, I've never seen them live. I, I'm So I'm just kind of in awe, like that was your first show. That Even at a stadium or whatever environment that was. Plus, the Sugar Cubes is like one of my favorite bands of all time. So yeah, I'm very jealous. And I also love the Bengals, too. I had a pocket rocker tape with the Bengals. So both of you... Have some Bravo. amazing first concerts there. Yeah. All right. Joan, first music obsession. It's it's Steely Dan. Very, very, very <laughs> honestly. A thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. That's truly, truly my answer. And that book's not a game. Um, followed closely by the Beatles. And my my introduction when I was little to the Beatles was backwards because it was it was the Hard Day's Night soundtrack, uh, which is not which is not, you know, that's not the first thing you hand somebody, but it, there was a tape of it that uh, that existed in in the tape deck. and I listened to it over and over and over and over. and then it was like, wait, there are more records. Wait. What? Um, yeah. Cool, cool. All right. How about you, Alex? I'm, I, I can't think of anything. There's got to be, there has to be something earlier than this because this would have been like 89. But I, I think the one that really is was the most important and the one that is kind of the most lasting uh, is De La Soul is Dead by De La Soul. Saturday. Which was, I think, I mean, I had heard, I'd, I'd heard and liked uh, popular hip hop before this, certainly, like the things that were on the radio. But this was the first thing that really, like, because this is a landmark of hip hop production and like the the things, the amount of just sample sources. They write about De La Soul in the book a little bit because like, but more about Three Feet High and Rising because that's the one where they did sample Steely Dan. But this record, just hearing the way that they used all of these things, some of which I was dimly aware of, some of which I'd never, you couldn't figure out where anything was coming from. Like it's just the type of record that you couldn't make after about 1989 because of sampling law. It's like that and Paul's boutique are both kind of like impossible today to clear. You know, you could never get away with it. So it was like hearing all of that just really, I think, opened my mind up to the possibilities of, you know, what music production could do and what, uh, you know, sampling could do and all of those. And just kind of that, that trying to get to the bottom of that album lyrically and all the things that they're, all their sort of weird slang that they're making up in the, in the course of that and the weird kind of narratives, multiple kind of storylines running through it. It has a read along storybook component, by the way, taking it back just to wrap it around to the first question, if I might, uh, there is a, you're supposed to read along in the booklet and then there's a, you know, like, you know, hello boys and girls. Like, you know, when you hear this sound, you know, and then there's a whole story about these kind of these, uh, got bullies beating up a kid and taking his De La Soul tape and listening to it. Uh, and then you follow that through, uh, just it's a fantastic album. Uh, there's gotta be something for that, but I'm still obsessed with it to this day. Just came yeah. out on Spotify recently. Finally, they finally figured yeah. straightened all their Spotify stuff out. And, uh, it's just, it's as deep and crazy as, I remember it being. I love that album. I, I don't know. I don't know if I recall the storybook element. I might have been too teeny. I don't know. That's really cool, though. I have to go check that out. Um, but De La Soul, Soul might have also been my first exposure to Steely Dan, even before I would have known with, you know, their sample. I think the peg sample in their song as well. So 
Yeah, really, I think that really was probably true for a lot of people, whether you know it or not. You know that because that's yeah, a, that yeah. was a huge song um, in that mm-hmm. moment. So if you were the right age at that time, you definitely. Yeah, actually, this is not in our um, list of first timers quiz questions, but I'm just curious what's your fir- or what's your favorite Steely Dan song? So that's a that's a such a that's a t- <laughs> that's a tough one that changes all the time. Yeah. Um, today, what what is it today? I mean, God, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe one has to pick. No, God, maybe Kid Charlemagne. Maybe. Maybe, um, God, I don't know. I'll just say that because there's no, I keep, I'm, I'm answering in my head and then I'm like, no, not, no, it's yeah. I don't know. It's tough to pick one. Each, each is its own special child. I have a cool answer. Somebody asked me this and my cool answer is the second arrangement, which is a song that they never released because they could never, that's the one they couldn't finish it. Uh, they, that was the one that got erased famously while they were recording and they could never recreate what they had done on the take that they had used so that it got lost forever and you can find it on the internet and it's great. And it would have been like maybe the best song on Gaucho if it had been on Gaucho, uh, but it wasn't. And so that one kind of, for me, represents everything that they were striving for but uh could never achieve and all of that um my sentimental favorite because it's a i i think it's a song it's a song about la and it's a song about uh marriage and it's a song about all those things is i i think is uh, and and also uh you know the, the odyssey uh of homer um the uh, home at last Uh, from Asia, which is a, a beautiful song. And uh, I, that is uh, also David Duchovny's favorite Steely Dan song. And we once, wow. once in an interview, we talked with this came up and we talked about it. And I was like, uh, do you want to just bag this interview and go out to my car and listen to Asia? Because uh, I got it on CD out there. And David Duchovny said, no, thank you. Um, so. <laughs> Denied. Denied. Uh, could have been a great memory for both of us. Sorry, he you didn't want to have that happen. Yeah. I was, I would have been a perfect gentleman the whole time. Um, but <laughs> maybe he's concerned, that I would, you know, put my arm around him in a weird way while we were doing But only as bros. <laughs> His loss. Yeah. I Yeah, I don't know. Natalie, what's yours? I feel like mine would just be right now. It's just Peg. I think, I, I think that's the one I listen to the most right now. But Peg's like the ultimate. That's a perfect answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of, it, yeah, it has a groove that I really enjoy. What about you, Natalie? What's your favorite Steely Dan? I don't know. I don't know. I have, I don't know Steely Dan as well as you do, but I am familiar with Asia. That's kind of the album that I revisit the most. So it would be something on that album. Because I kind of, if I'm in the mood for it, I'll just throw it on and let the whole thing play through. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm just, I'm going to pick the whole album. Cool. Good, good. Yeah. Or is Asia, is Asia the one with um that really cool 
solo. We've we've like the dissected drum solo? it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, so maybe that one. I think that might be the one that I gravitate toward. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, first musician crush, Joan. Me. Uh, when I was little, Ringo. Uh, in my <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was, a, I was a Ringo woman. Um, in my later teen years, I definitely had a, an Eddie Vedder crush, uh, mm-hmm. at, which then years later after that, I was at a, a, a party at their manager's place and he was there and asked me if I had any cigarettes and I did at the time. And I had this moment of being like, man, baby teen Joan would be so stoked to be hanging out with Ed smoking cigarettes on this balcony. And I saw him several times after that. And he remembered me and everything and was like, hey, Joan. I was like, hey, hey. <laughs> Joan, be stoked on this. Such a such a kind, uh, nice dude. Um, he seems like a very nice yeah. person. Yeah. But... Ringo was the OG. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> just before we get to yours, Alex, I just have to say, like, I love those moments where you like you hit a moment in your your adult age where you're just like, oh my God, my teenage self would just die right now. Cause we had Rachel Hayden <laughs> in the store recently. And that dog when I was in high school was just like my absolute favorite. And I am still to this day like, holy crap, I cannot believe Rachel Hayden was talking to me. That's crazy. So cool. I love it when that happens. Anyways, Alex, what's your your first musician crush? Deborah Gibson. Oddly enough, I'm giving and I'm giving her Deborah. Uh, because that that is her uh, professional name of choice these days. But yeah, when she, I think when you know when she, when I was eight and she was however old she was when I was eight, that seemed like you know she seemed like a like she seemed very kid like. She seemed like a young person, uh, and that's was probably twenty five or something. I don't even know, but like it seemed at the time there was sort of you know it's it, as as somebody who was very young. Uh, you know that was that was that was my first. I was more of a Debbie Gibson person than than a, than a Tiffany person. Um, these days, I don't know. I might put the Tiffany catalog against Debbie uh, ahead um, musically as a professional, as a former professional music critic. I feel maybe differently, but like in, in my heart, as a young man, well, former it was, De- it was Debbie, recovering professional music, occasional. <laughs> That's an interesting supposed yeah. former hmm. infatuation junkie. Um, yeah. <laughs> have you seen have you ever looked up Debbie Gibson playing that song Foolish Beat live with the piano? I've seen her do that. Yeah, I mean I've I don't know I've said like I've I've seen that perform. Like that's a real cuz yeah, Electric Youth is <sighs> that cuz is that's on Electric Youth, right? Or is that the later like I think that's on the blue one. Oh, okay, out, out of the, the blue. blue or yeah. It's that's uh, right cuz Electric Youth is the is the sort of the darker one. <laughs> it's like the Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the rhythm nation to the control. It's like in a more apocalyptic mode. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's this like amazing ballad, and it's so good. I love it still to this day. That's a good choice, Debbie Ipsen. Deborah, Deborah, DG. Okay, 
Deborah from, from Long Island, I believe. Uh, the Long Island mm-hmm. beer, much like De La Soul. Um, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. that's it's all mm-hmm. it's all coming together. So we're in the home stretch now, Joan. Can you tell us the first time you spent way too much money on a concert? Yes, uh, and I, the the my my memory um, because I rarely had enough money to spend any kind of money on anything other than going to shows like $5 shows. Uh, when I was a teen, I went to Lollapalooza in 93 and I don't remember how much the tickets were, but I remember that it was a lot. And I remember that it was, it was a lot to like scrounge together and make it happen. Um, but that, but that, that year was uh, Alice in Chains and Dinosaur Jr. and Rage Against Machine and, and uh, Luscious Jackson and Fishbone and um, Girls Against Boys, who I, Jessica Hopper, and I later did publicity for, which was a, a you know, another circle around thing. Um, but yeah, getting, I remember shelling out for Lollapalooza tickets and being fucking pumped. <laughs> Who were you there to see first and foremost? Uh, probably Alice in Chains and Dinosaur Jr. Kind of equal, equal, equally weighted in my in my mind at the time. Yeah, that's epic. It's an epic lineup for sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. How about you, Alex? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, no amount of money is too much money to spend on the live music experience. Uh, no, I don't really have any good examples of, I can't think of one in, in particular, but I will say that uh, at, at some point uh, last year, I bought tickets for a Mountain Goats Hold Steady show, which is happening in Chicago on July 1st. And uh, I live in Los Angeles and it is part of it's part of the book tour. We are going to be performing. We're going to be reading live in Chicago on that day, and then I'm going to run over to the Salt Shed to go see this concert. But at the time that I bought this, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to have to buy a plane ticket to go with this." And so, technically, that's probably the most expensive concert ticket uh, I have uh, purchased. I didn't know that years. was happening. It is. It's happening. It's that night. So I'm going to basically Great. leave the reading. Oh, yeah, I'm going to just jet over to Salt Shed. Um, but yeah, that was like to see those, uh, you know, like uh, the, those two, two, two of the songwriters who, you know, kind of, you know, if there are two songwriters who've influenced me a lot as a writer, uh, that, that would, uh, John Darnell and, uh, Craig Finn would be, would be up there. So to see, uh, those two guys and, uh, and Dillinger escape plan, um, <laughs> as well. Uh, so that's all, that's all happening, uh, in, in Chicago. So, so yeah, that's the one, I don't know. I can't really think of like anything, anytime that I'm like, wow, this is a, this is a you know, high priced uh, ticket, except like, you know, going to the symphony or something like, I don't think that really counts. I just shelled out like way too much money to be very close to the front of the stage for Depeche Mode this summer coming up because the first time I saw them, I was on the lawn like really far away from the stage and it was still one of the best shows I've ever seen. So I was like, I don't care. I am going to pay a ton of money. I need to be in the front this time. Mm-hmm. Like that was such a good show. It's yeah. a good, it's a, it's a good show. 
I saw them at the the uh, the Staples Center or whatever we call the Staples Center now, the Crypto.com Arena here in LA. <laughs> it's, it's a little too much of the new album, I think, versus oh, the hits because okay. there's so many hits that you want to hear, but it's a kind of incredible. It was great to be the, the LA crowd with the Elder Gods. Uh, enjoy all of Dave's yeah. different vests. He's got like all these different kind of waistcoats yes. in different colors that he comes out in. He is still, I don't know, he, you know, he, he's, he's 60, amazing. Just like really kind of moving and, you know, doing all of that. <laughs> it's a, a great advertisement for dying, literally dying of being of drug addiction and then coming back to life and being able to getting that oh, second life. Gosh. Um, he's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's really good. Uh, so have fun. I mean, speaking of being in LA with the, with the old heads, are you going to Cruel World Fest by chance? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so, but I did. Uh, I did last night. We we just went and we took a we took our twelve year old, which was kind of a uh, you know maybe a terrible idea, but also an awesome idea uh, to see John Waters uh, do yes. his spoken oh, cool. word thing uh, at the Luckman Center at Cal State, uh, right here, like twenty minutes from us, and uh, that's incredible. It was incredible. He's you know he's still. We were just like, you don't know who this is. We're telling the kid, you don't know who this is. We can't really show you any of these movies just yet, except for maybe Hairspray. <laughs> but like, just trust us that at some point you're going to be like, yeah, my parents took me to see John Waters when I was like 12. And like, it is the filthiest show you've ever seen. It's like, it's it, it, it's just the things that they know now. I, I can't even, wow. the, the names for things that they have that they didn't have. The, I learned about sex acts that I didn't know about and I'm 45. <laughs> Uh, so it was pretty incredible, but that was, that's that, but the, the really good LA old head audience at that, it like really cool. Uh, they all kind of, you know, like it was, it was, it was pretty uh, amazing to see those crowds. It's like worth going to those things just for that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, actually I wanted to ask another question about the book. What is, what's your favorite storyline or character that you, that you did for this book? I mean, all right. My favorite, I really like, let me think I can pull it. I can pull it out. Cause I've been trying to figure out like what to read. Cause it's weird to, you know, sort of think about reading this book cause it's so PC. Um, and so kind of just broken down. Um, I really like uh, Ricky, I think. Um, but I think it's like in terms of the portraits and everything, like that's a different conversation, right? Like, I think I have, I have a, I have different favorite portraits. For each one, uh, you know, it's just each time I each time I open it, I really like Josie. I like the expanding man. I don't know. I, I like. I, I'm trying to think. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what all the you know what all the uh, what what my favorite piece of writing is in here. But I was reading it out loud in my kitchen, trying to get like, oh, can I read this? And uh, in at readings, and uh, you know, I think uh, the answer is yes. Uh, yes. But that's as, that's as far as <laughs> that's as that's as far as I'm going to go. I, I like the brill building section a lot. I don't know. I, the, I usually, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the whole thing, which is unusual for me. You should, yeah. Aww. Joan, do you have a favorite mm-hmm. storyline or character? Uh, I, the, and I love the Mister Steely Dan chapter tremendously. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's, I think it's full brilliance. Um, I, in terms of paintings. I my favorite painting I did still I think is the holy man. I just like how it came. I just like how it came out. It's just a, a wonderful man uh lying in the manner of an odalisque on a couch with a tiny fez on his head and it's delightful to me. I like how it came out. Yeah, I so I did read uh, a little bit of Jack and 
Um, you know, everybody knows that song, Do It Again, which sounds so lighthearted and kind of happy, upbeat, but it's about Jack who gets away basically with killing a man because the hanging man had a day off, <laughs> which I didn't know. I never really listened to it that hard before. So I was surprised to learn that, actually. Well, it says, um, but, it says the hangman yeah. isn't hanging, so he could just be like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. I've hung oh. too many people. I'm tired of my, this is a terrible job. I feel awful. Like, I don't like it. It's, it's unclear. I think I said he has a day off, but it might, just, it yeah. might've just, I picture though it being kind of like, oh, it's small. It's a, the wild west. And maybe like the hangman has like a number of different municipalities that he goes around to. And if you are lucky enough to be on like, sentenced to death on a day when the hangman's not there, it's like, well, you know, it's, you know, it's like when you go, like yeah. when the, when the cop doesn't show up to traffic court. Or something, you're like, yeah, I can get out of it, you know. Which they don't, yeah. by the way. Always go to try. Always go to yeah. court. Always go to trial <laughs> on your traffic offenses. If I can leave you with two messages uh, as I leave this record <laughs> store, one is the Hubert other Lewis. one. One is Hubert Lewis uh, should be acting. Should be cast him in your movie and always <laughs> take it to trial because those the, the cops are not going to bother unless they really have a vendetta against you. They're not going to come yeah. to court, so they just t- dismiss everybody. You just have to go a few times. Yeah. What's your or did you did you all learn anything that just like surprised you in this process about Steely Dan? Or did you already come in kind of just knowing so much? I learned so much. <laughs> I learned a, a, a tremendous amount. What I think one of the one of the one of the early uh, delights was digging into the life of Kathy Barbarian, yeah. about whom I knew almost nothing. Uh, that, that that's part of the joy of uh, loving Steely Dan is that there's so much that's oblique and there are so many little wormholes that you can go down when you begin to research um, things, whether they're theories about songs or particular characters where those characters come from, the, you know, the, the whole bar drug bust with G. Gordon Liddy, that, that story, <laughs> looking at newspaper articles and um, digging into that was delightful. There, there, I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous number of tidbits that I think uh, any Dan fan will, will find fascinating and delightful in the book. I'm excited to read it for sure. Okay, last first-timers quiz question. First time you spent way too much money on an album. Uh, for me, I don't know. It's not too It's not too much, but the first record that I remember spending more than I had to spend on was a Brigitte Bardot picture disc that was probably like Ooh. 60 bucks or something like that at Sound Exchange in Houston. And I still have it, and I love it. And it and it, and that's not too much to spend for it. But it was it was just at the time I I certainly didn't have sixty bucks to be throwing around. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Alex? Uh, same story. Just it wasn't so much money, just more than I could afford. I bought a vinyl copy of the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls soundtrack for the woman Whoa. I was dating at the time. Uh, and the relationship did not work out, but I got it back oh. in the breakup, baby. Yeah, you did. Oh, yeah, it's on the shelf. Nice. It's over there. Um, I can put it on whenever I want to. Uh, great soundtrack, <laughs> great movie. 
Uh, and is that is that like an Ennio Morricone thing? No, it's uh, who does the, that? It's the uh, it's it's not the Love and Spoonful. It's like somebody. Hold on, a strawberry alarm clock. Uh, oh. mm-hmm. they're, they're on the soundtrack, but then let's see the Carrie nations where the lip synced, uh, like the, the, the actresses in the movie lip sync to, you know, the, the, to the artists. Um, it is, yeah, it's, it's Lynn Carey who we went and performed as mama lion in a band, um, called mama lion and, uh, the lead singer of the peanut butter conspiracy. If you know the peanut butter conspiracy at all. Uh, Barbara Robinson from That's, Peanut Butter Conspiracy. Wow! Uh, and so it's a real kind of studio. It's it's like a very amazing kind of ersatz uh, '60s pop album, uh, and it has very you know cool. sort of all this. And so it's and it's all the songs that the band in the movie does, and that movie's spectacular. And I don't know, it was probably, again, yeah, it was probably eighty dollars, and I like didn't have eighty dollars. Um, so that was that was the first you know th- that I recall. Um, and, uh, you know, all things, all things come back to you that you're meant to own. So I, I'm going to say that I, it's, I was yeah. always meant to have this. So I, I consider it something I bought for myself, whether I do it or not. Yeah. That's a good one. That's one of my favorite books actually I've ever read. Love that. That's so cool. Well, this has been really fun to learn more about you both and yeah. also yeah. quantum cri- criminals, which I highly recommend everyone in the store to pick up a copy of see these amazing illustrations and read about Steely Dan, our favorite in-store band that we talk about all the time. <laughs> and I have to say, as as more of a, a Baby Dan fan, I, I really love this book. It was unexpectedly sucked in right away. I just love the way that you share accounts of other interesting artists' lives and other like historical, cultural, and musical milestones um, that were happening concurrently that just made the whole world come alive. And like alongside Joan's wonderful paintings that really kind of set the mood for these essays, it was incredibly engaging to read. Highly, highly recommended. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad we came in here today. Yeah. Me too. We were just walking around eating hot dogs. (laughs) <laughs> and and came 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 across the came across the store. Yeah, you'll have to come back and play the high fidelity game with us next. Top five Steely Dan songs yeah. or something. Sounds great. Top five Steely Dan <laughs> records. But yeah, cool. Well, thanks so much for hanging out in the store with us today. I think we should close the store and go home for the day. Yeah, we've, all, we've been here for too long. Yes. Well, thank you again so much for visiting. I've had so much fun talking to you both, and I hope we get to chat with you soon. Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 Happy trails. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.